You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Paul's letter to the Christians in the churches of the region of Galatia. Several churches involved. And, of course, the gist of the letter is Paul's encouragement to them not to return to legalism. Religion means literally that, a return to the law, religion. And so he's saying to them, now that you have come to know the Lord Jesus by grace through faith, my encouragement to you is not to return to the practice of placing people in bondage with your rules or even insisting that they obey a certain set of rules in order that they might experience the grace of Christ. He says, you must understand that it is by grace through faith that we come to know Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And of course, these were people who'd experienced the grace of Christ, but as I've said on previous occasion, the pendulum began to swing in their life, and now they were returning to all kinds of rules and regulations. And the Apostle Paul is addressing this issue in the book of Galatians. Sometimes people call Galatians Romans Jr. because many of the great truths that you would find in that outstanding book of Christian doctrine, the book of Romans, are found here in a summarized form in the book of Galatians. Now, in just a few moments, I want to speak to you on this subject, the law of God and the grace of God. The law of God and the grace of God. Now, in these next two services, and for those of you who are here in this congregation, that means this morning and this evening. For those watching on television, it may mean this morning and then next Sunday morning, or those on the radio, it may be today and tomorrow. But in these next two services, we are going to seek by the grace of God and the ministry of God's Holy Spirit to unravel what is in the hearts of many people a great mystery. Now, at the heart of this mystery is a question. Here is the question. How does an individual come to have right standing with God? How can I know, in other words, if I died, I would go to heaven? How can I be, to use the word the Apostle Paul uses here, how can I be justified? In other words, declared righteous by God to the extent that my sins are forgiven and that I can spend my forever with God in heaven. How does that happen? Now, I'm sure you're aware that across the world, there are so many religions that will tell you how you can get right with God. That is at the heart of this mystery that we're going to be talking about this morning and then in our next service together this evening. And let me say just parenthetically for those of you who are here this morning in this auditorium, I would not miss the evening service for anything in the world. Because this evening we're going to be looking at a verse that I believe is one of the greatest verses in all of the Scripture. 
Where the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this evening, as we continue to unravel this mystery, we're going to be thinking together about the exchanged life. The exchanged life. There are many people who say, how can I experience Christ living in me, living through me, wearing me like a hand in a glove. That's what I want to know. I want to, I want to be just a suit of clothes that Jesus wears. How can that happen? We'll be dealing with that in the service this evening, and I want to encourage you to be here for that service as we think about the exchange life. Now, in the Bible, there are two great bodies of truth. They combine to make one whole, but they are two separate bodies of truth. There is that portion which we call the law. And primarily when we think about the law, although the Old Testament contains more than the law, it is, of course, history and poetry and books of wisdom and books of prophecy and so forth, generally we think of the law as being in that portion of the Scripture we call the Old Testament. In fact, it is the Old Covenant the Old Testament. We have in our mind's eye, don't we, the picture of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, that second journey now he's made to the top of that mountain. And in his arms he cradles the tablets of the law, these stone tablets upon which have been carved out what we often call the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And of course the Ten Commandments are the summary of the law. There is much more to be said in the Scripture about the law. There is the amplification. There is the explanation of the law. There are instructions about how to apply the law in our lives. But basically, we think of the law as being summarized in what we call the Ten Commandments. And we are told this is the way a person should live if he is to be in right standing with God. But then we turn over to the portion of the Scripture that we call the New Testament, and we find Jesus, in fact, uh, commending us to the law, saying that he's not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. But yet this same Lord Jesus who said that until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest inscription of the law will fail, we find this same Jesus telling us that the way to have eternal life is not by keeping the law, but rather it can only happen when God, by an act of his sovereign grace, declares us right with him. And that happens when we repent of our sin and receive Christ by faith as our Savior. And so over the centuries, people have sought somehow to explain how on the one hand there could be the law saying this is what you need to do to be right with God. And on the other hand, in the New Testament, we find this which says you can't do that. You're a sinner. The only way that you can be saved or have eternal life and forgiveness of sin is by a sovereign act of God's grace. How do we put these two great bodies of truth together? Let me tell you that, that over the years, there have been some misguided attempts to put these together. For instance, you'll find some groups that say the only way you'll be right with God is just by keeping the law. And, and basically the way it works is this. If you can be good enough, God's going to take you to heaven. If you do things good, you get toward heaven. Do things bad, you go toward hell. 
Hopefully the good outweighs the bad, and, and if your life is basically good, well, you're going to go to heaven when you die. Now, the Scripture just explodes that myth. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us that if we want to be good enough, there's, there's one basic standard, and that is perfection. Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven was perfect. We read in Matthew 5, 48, for instance. And so that doesn't work. There are other people who say, well, here's how law and grace go together. You come to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You accept the fact he died on the cross for your sins. He paid the price for your sins. But once you trust in Christ, in order to stay right with God, you keep the law. So you're saved by grace, but you are kept by the law. So much so that if you don't keep the law very well after what you call your experience of salvation, that's too bad. You have lost your salvation and you're going to go to hell. Well, we know that's wrong because the Scripture says, All the Father gives to me will come to me. Him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. And then it further goes on to say not only that, but this is the will of God that all that he gives me, of all that he gives me, I will lose none of them. And we call this the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. Once saved, always saved. Once you trust in Christ, why, his life is in you forever. And so we know that is not true. And then there are other people who say, well, forget the law of the Old Testament. It has no meaning. It has no sense. It has no purpose. Just forget it. These people, many times we use the phrase antinomian. The word nomos is the word in the Hebrew language for law, and we call them antinomian. We say they have just totally ripped out the, the portion of the Scripture we call the law of the Old Testament, and uh, they say, forget the law, don't even read the law, it doesn't make any difference, there's no sense in the law. And we know that couldn't be right because our Lord himself holds the law in such high regard. So we have a mystery. How does the law of God work together with the grace of God? And it's important that we unravel the mystery because... At the heart of that mystery is the question, how do I get to God? How can I be declared in right standing with God? Where do we find the answer to that? Well, certainly we don't find it in the mind of man. We have to find it in the mind of God. And so you have your Bible open to Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of our Lord. We're going to read beginning with verse 17. Now, the Apostle Paul in this letter has already made a sweeping statement. In fact, he repeats it in the 16th verse of Galatians chapter 2. He says, We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And we've looked at the fact that man has a common condition. We're all sinners. We reach a common conclusion. We deserve the wages of sin, which is eternity and separation from God and Christ in a place called hell. But we have a common conversion. That is, we can come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here. We come to him by the faith of Jesus Christ. And then notice, if you will, the very last phrase of that same verse. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In other words, doing the things that the law says to do will not get you in right standing with God. Now here we find what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Scripture, 
is the unraveling of this mystery, the explanation of this mystery. Look with me, if we will, beginning with verse 17. If, while we seek to be justified by Christ, remember the word justified means that God declares us, well, we've used this little acronym, just as if I'd never sinned. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin. God forbid, literally, may it never be so. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor, for I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith. Literally, I live by faith, that is, the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate, or I do not make void the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, that is, by law works, by keeping law, if I can become righteous that way, then Christ is dead in vain. In other words, his death on the cross was needless. And so we're going to look at the law of God and the grace of God in these next few moments. Now, we're going to look at a lie which must be exposed, a loyalty which must be examined, a law which must be explained. Then in our next service together, we're going to look at a life which must be exchanged and a Lord who must be extolled or exalted. And that will be in our next service together. Father, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit will speak to the heart of every man, every woman here. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will show us that it is not by the keeping of the law that we are declared in right standing, and yet at the same time, this law which was given to us is certainly not without purpose. It is not some failed system on your part, but yet it has very distinct purpose in our lives. And Father, show us how law and grace work together so that we may, might be in right standing with you. Father, I pray that if there are those here this morning who think that they're going to get to heaven because they live a good life, or those who think that even if they trust in Jesus as their Savior, they may lose that salvation later on because their salvation is dependent upon how they behave, or even those who think, well, I can just live like the devil and just say that I'm a Christian, then I'll go to heaven because God uh, would want me in heaven. Father, I pray that in the case of each of those, that you would just explode that myth. Expose it for what it is, a lie from the devil. And Father, show us how important it is that we understand law and grace and how important it is, in fact, imperative that we experience your grace if we are to have forgiveness of sin, cleansing of sin, live the victorious life, an abundant life, and live with you in heaven forever. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Keep your Bible open to Galatians chapter 2, the law of God and the grace of God. You have your Bible open to chapter 2. We're going to look at some interesting verses beginning with verse 17. Now, what I'd like to do in these two services, quite simply, is walk through these verses one at a time, explain as best we can by the moving of God's Holy Spirit, explain what each of these verses mean, and what their contemporary application is. In other words, what will this do to you or for you uh, today, as well as what was meant by 
the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the, script, of the Spirit when he wrote this letter to the Christians in Galatia. First of all, I think there is a lie which must be exposed. That's the first thing we're going to look at. A lie which must be exposed. And I want you to underline, if you're taking notes, whether mentally or actually, I want you to underline that phrase, must be. This lie must be exposed. Now, the reason I say it must be exposed is not only because the Scripture says that, that would be enough. But secondly, let me just tell you that this lie is at the heart of much false theology in the world today. Their entire so-called Christian denominations, which are built upon something that is actually a lie. And we must expose it. Now, what is that lie? All right, here is the lie. The lie is that the laws of God produce right standing with God. Let me say that again. The lie is that the laws of God will produce right standing with God. Now, the laws of God are so very important. I appreciate what Addison Leach said about the laws of God. He said, they are like the ingredients on the package of life. And you are free to mix them up any way you want. But if you mix them up your way and not God's way, what you get will not be what God has pictured on the package. Now, that's right. Someone else has said the laws of God are like the grain of the universe. If you have ever done any kind of carpentry work, you know that wood has a grain to it. He says the laws of God are like the grain of the universe. Now, you can slide against the grain, but if you do, you're going to get splinters. Someone else has said the laws of God in reality cannot be broken without consequence. You may think you break the law, but in reality, you break yourself upon the law. Someone says, I'm going to break the law of gravity, which is a physical law. He jumps off of a two-story building. He won't break the law of gravity. He will break himself upon the effect of the law of gravity. The same thing is true with the spiritual laws of God. You don't break them in reality, but you do break yourself upon them. Now, the lie, however, is this. The laws of God were given to make us in right standing with Him. I remember uh, one evening when we were living in Mansfield, Texas, I heard uh, first the doorbell rang and then just a, a, a staccato knock at our door. And I went to the door and there was a young girl. I had seen her before on the high school campus. In fact, I, c I can recall her name even now. And um, her, she was obviously very agitated. Her eyes were just sort of moving back and forth, dancing back and forth. You know, she was just scared. It, it seemed to me like almost as if someone were chasing her. She was not a member of our church. She was not in our youth group. I had just met her on our high school campus. And uh, I invited her to come in. I said, What's the, what can I do for you? And she said, I have concluded that there is no God. And I said, now, how could you reach a conclusion that there is no God? And then she began to tell me about the church that she attended. She said, my church and my preacher at my church tells me that I need to do all of these things in order to be right with God. She said, and so I've done them. She said, I've been baptized. And she said, I go to my church every week and I observe the Lord's Supper. 
and I listen as ardently as I can to what he says, the Bible says, I must do in order to be right with God. But she said, I also hear him saying that if we don't obey these laws, God will cast us aside. And she said, I have tried as hard as I can to obey those laws, but I have discovered that no matter how hard I try, I am always breaking those laws. By the way, who does that sound like? It sounds like the Apostle Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am, who says, who can deliver me from this body of death? Why did he come to that conclusion? He said, the things I always want to do, I never do. The things I never want to do, I find myself constantly doing. He says, in fact, to the Galatians, he says, there is a war going on inside me. Now, why is it? And she said, I have discovered that no matter how much I know about all these rules, I am always breaking. In fact, she said, it seems like the more rules I know, the more rules I break. And she said, I cannot just believe that a loving God would tell you one day that you are his child and next day that you are not his child. So she said, I have concluded there just must not be a God. Now, <clears throat> let me just say that before she left that evening, she came to know God as God really is by receiving Christ as her personal Savior. But let me just tell you that her anxieties were produced in her by a religion that is built upon this lie. And that is that if you know enough law of God and you keep that law fervently enough, God considers you his child. But if you don't know those laws or if you don't keep the laws that you know, you are not a child of God. Well, the saddest things that I ever had experienced to me was a, a call regarding a young man who had, uh, who had taken his life. Now, let me just tell you that we had been in counseling with this young man. He was 18 years of age. We'd been counseling with him for, for several years. Now, the problem in the home was that his father did not know how to discipline him. Uh, when, the, when the young man would do good things, his father would say, you're my, that's my son, you're my son. And, and when he would disappoint his father, his father would act like he did not even belong in the house. Let me give you an example. At a little league ball game, a little 3-2 uh, league ball game one time, the, the, this young man hit a ball. It bounced over first base. And you know how it just bounces around with little league ball players. And first base was overthrown and second base was overthrown and third base was overthrown. Anyway, he got a home run off of a, a, what should have been an out. And he came trotting around, you know, just burning it. And he hit home plate. His dad was standing there and said, that's my boy, my boy. He said, come on over here. He sat down beside him. He gave him a Coke. says, man, a home run hitter. Later on in that same game, fifth inning, last inning for 3-2, he, uh, this boy got up and he struck out. And he came over dejectedly and sat by his father. And his father said, you can't sit there. That seat is reserved for my son. My son hits home runs. Now, can you imagine that? Um, this is the way it was, his whole growing up. If he would come home with good grades, his father would say, son, you're the most wonderful thing in the world. If he came home with bad grades, he, his father literally would say to him, who are you? I don't know you. You see, my son who lives in this house, he makes good grades. By the, by the way, this young man got to where he would never bring a friend home. In fact, he was afraid to make friends because he was afraid that if he brought them home, depending on, you know, the mood of his father, he would either be claimed as a son or not as a son, not claimed as a son. Sometimes he would bring bad grades home and do things like wash the car, clean up the garage in order to impress his father, but that didn't work either. Well, toward the end of his high school career, his father got him a job at a company owned by a friend of his. 
And he said to his son, now, if you, if you do well and you keep your job and you get a promotion, you can live here at the house. If you do poorly, I want you to leave the house. I don't want you to live here. And in fact, I'd rather you just change your name. The company went bankrupt. And so the boy, he knew that he'd lost his job. Everybody lost their job. And so he came home and he was packing his clothes. His father stormed in the room, said, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, I've lost my job. He tried to explain it to his father. His father said, I'm sorry, get out. He said, but dad, you don't understand. He said, get out, change your name. So his boy put his clothes in a cardboard box. He went down to the bus station, called his father one more time and said, dad, you don't understand. And his father hung up the phone on him. And the response was that the boy just took out a gun and took his life. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel, but let me just tell you this. In reality, that didn't really happen. You see, I, I just made up that story. You ought to be relieved at that, although that happens. I just made up that story. It's not a true story. But the, the father in that story is like the God of people who believe that your standing with God depends on your behavior. You behave right, you're okay, you're my child. You behave wrong, you're not okay, you're not my child. Well, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest motivation for good works? I'll tell you this, it's not fear that you're going to go to hell. It is love and security. If you don't believe that, you just see how well a guy paints a flagpole when he's up there without a safety strap. He spends most of his time hanging on. You strap him in, he can do a good job painting that flagpole. And I look at people, I look at some here this morning, and you have not been doing a good job at life, I can tell it. I mean, I can sense it from you. You've not been doing a good job. You are frustrated. You are hanging on. You are fearful that if you do something wrong, you're going to, that's going to be it. God, and, and the relationship with you, that you have with God is based on this idea that the more things you know you ought to do right, the, the better you're going to be. And you're dis, disheartened this morning because you know things that you don't even do. You see? And so the lie is that the law produces righteousness. But let me tell you what the reality is. The reality is that the law doesn't produce right standing, but that the law is just a picture of God's righteousness. Now, let's look at it. Verse 17, if while we seek to be justified by Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul is putting himself in the role of whom? All right, one of these Judaizers, that's the name, by the way, for people who believed you had to be a Jew keeping the law before you could be a Christian. So he says, if we, that is we Jews, if we seek uh, or while we seek to be justified by Christ, we are found sinners. Is therefore the Christ, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? He says, God forbid. Now let me explain that. As I said, he's putting himself in the role of these who say you've got to keep the law to be right with God. You, you see, these people, here's what they say. Why? If your behavior has nothing to do with your eternal destiny, what's to keep a person from just going down the aisle of a church and praying and getting saved and then just living like the devil? I mean, he can just live like the devil, can't he? You see, that's their question. So the Apostle, says, the Apostle Paul says this. Look, if in the process of seeking to be justified with Christ... Christ way, that is by His grace through faith. If in the process of that, we wake up to the fact that we are sinners, 
which you've got to wake up to in order to get saved. You know why some people here this morning have never come to know Christ as your Savior? Because you have never been thoroughly convicted that you are a sinner. Saved from what? You see, salvation is not, not just to heaven. It is from hell. And maybe you're one of those people who just, you know, you always love God. You just always want to go to heaven. You never wanted to go to hell. You always wanted to be good. And so you just said, tell me the prayer, I'll pray. And you just prayed that prayer. And you've never gotten the conviction that you were a sinner. And the Apostle Paul says, if in the process of doing it God's way, by trusting in Jesus Christ, you wake up to the fact that you are a desperately wicked sinner, has Jesus made you sin? No, God forbid, he says. He's just shown you the truth about yourself. And so the lie is that the law will produce good works. I read a book one time, and I'll use this illustration from that book, although I don't necessarily agree with all of the theology in the book, but I'll use this illustration. You see, the law of God can no more make you right with God than a mirror can clean you up. What does a mirror do? A mirror shows you how dirty you are, but it cannot clean you up. Something else has got to happen to clean you up, you see. Now, a mirror is important because it lets you know that you need cleaning up. By the way, did all of y'all look at a mirror this morning? Why? why, why? Because, you, you know, you, you want to know what you look like to the rest of us. Well, the, the Word of God, the laws of God are a mirror showing you what you look like to God, you see. So the lie, first of all, is that the law will produce good works or produce right standing in you. The reality that it will not produce them the reality is that the law is a picture of the perfect heart of God, the way it ought to be, the way it could be, all right? So there is the lie which is exposed. All right, secondly, there is a loyalty which must be examined. There is a loyalty which must be examined. Now, what is the loyalty? The loyalty is this old idea that yeah, preacher, I believe that, but, but really, you, you are sort of saved by your works. I mean, don't you sort of help God out? I mean, you go ahead and you go down the aisle, you receive Christ your Savior, you say, I'm trusting in God's grace, but, but then don't you just sort of, don't you sort of snow God with your works? Isn't that the way that it, isn't that right? I mean, don't you say, look, look at all the good things I've done. I mean, God, I'm going to church, and I'm tithing, and I'm, I'm doing more than that. I'm giving, and I'm leading people to Christ, and I'm, I'm really doing the best that I know how. God, I mean, you've got to be impressed with me. You see, there, there is a loyalty which must be examined. So let's look at it in verse 18. He says, if I build again, okay, if I go back and do again what God by his love and his grace has set me free from doing, if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, let me give you the background for this verse. It'll help you to understand it. Peter had come down there by himself to these Christians in Galatia, and they were Gentiles, never been circumcised, didn't know a lot about the laws of God. Peter sat down at the table. He ate barbecued pork ribs. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, he, he ate everything they ate. And he probably said, you know, boy, I'll tell you, he probably even pretended to be like a Gentile. You know, like, like I can remember one, I, I grew up very near farms. I never, was, never grew up on a farm, but uh, maybe one day a week um, uh, when I was a little boy, 
we would go down to my granddaddy's farm. And so I grew up sort of near farm. But, you know, I remember a time when, when uh, I was pastoring a church in a rural community, and, and, and I really wanted those farmers to think that I was a farmer, you know. And I was familiar with a lot of things they were familiar with, but not everything, you know. And I can remember making some terrible blunders just trying to impress them with the fact that I knew what they were doing when I didn't. Now, <clears throat> Peter was like this. Peter came down there, and he really tried to put it on the dog for the Gentiles. But, but lo and behold, not very long after that, James, who was the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, who was also the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the book of James, James sent some men down from the church of Jerusalem to see what was happening in these Galatian churches. And so the moment these Jewish Christians got down there, Peter, he, he, he wiped the barbecue sauce off of his mouth, and he excused himself, and he went over and ate bagels and locks. I want to tell you, he probably wished that he was back at the barbecue, but not necessarily. But anyway, he, he ate with the Jews. And they said, hey, Peter, you, hey, here's, look at this big old rib right here, Peter. And Peter said, rib? I don't eat ribs. Oh, come on, Peter. Yesterday, we were talking about the fact that you put away more of these ribs than anybody else. We couldn't believe you ate all those ribs after that big bacon and egg breakfast that you ate. And the pork chops the night before. Peter just, he moved back, and, and he started acting like a Jew. So much so that the Apostle Paul says in the early part of this verse, he said he confused everybody. He even confused my buddy, Paul says, my buddy Barnabas that took me under my wing. He was all caught up in that hypocrisy, and, and now he's going back to the law and saying that you've got to have all these laws to be right with God. All right, now here's what Peter says. Let's look at it. If I do that, if I build again the things which I destroyed, if I go back and say, okay, folks, it's, it's really not totally a work of the grace of God by which you're justified. It really is sort of by keeping the law. If I build again the things which I destroyed, you know what he says? He said, I'm just going to discover not only is it a sin for me to do that because I'm flying in the face of what Jesus said. Jesus said, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's what is already in your heart that defiles you. So he said, in the first place, I am disobeying Jesus, but in the second place, he says, I am revealing to myself and to the world that I'm just a big, fat sinner. I'm just showing what a sinner I am. Let, let, let's imagine that uh, here is a person who has a terrible habit. And th th let's say this habit is something that, that uh, is debilitating physically. Maybe it's, it's something that they take, or maybe it's how much of anything they take. or may, You know, they, they have a habit. Let's just imagine. You, you, you fill in the blank with what kind of habit it is, okay? And this person says, you know, I really realize that habit's a bad example. It's not helping me with God. It weakens my prayer life. It just is terrible. And so that person says, you know, really to be right with God, I need to make a resolution that I'm going to quit that habit. Now, let me just tell you something. One of, the, one of the great truths of the Scripture is that you will never overcome permanently except by the grace of God. And that's the reason this world is filled with all kind of packets and books and programs that will encourage you to overcome. And you, if you struggle with that, you've tried this one and this one and this one and this one. That's why, for instance, diet books are a multi-billion dollar because, you see, you'll never really permanently win except by the grace of God. Now, really. You say, now, wait a minute, Brother Tom. I think a person ought to have an iron will and steel determination and make a... Hey, listen, occasionally you read about somebody who does something like that, but you'll discover before very long they've got other problems too. 
You say, are you saying a person ought not to make resolutions or try to do better? I didn't say that. I never would say that. You ought to. I ought to. All right? I would never say that. But I'm just telling you, if you're going to win, it's got to be by the grace of God. It's got to be by the principle of, of, of verse 20, which we're going to deal with in the next service, which I'm going to show you how you can win. But now, here's a person with a habit. You fill in the blank, whatever the habit is. The first thing that person does when he, when he realizes how debilitating that is, that person says, he calls his friends together and says, I just want you to know that I'm never going to do anymore. Not, you, you know, never, I'm, you know, I'm through with that. Now, occasionally you, you probably know, and I know of people who've, who've said that and meant it and done it, you know. But what happens when, when you look around the corner and that person's at it again? You see, he's made these rules, and the obvious evidence now is that he's broken the rules that even he has made. Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, I have come here out of the law system. If anybody could be saved by the law, it was me. I was a Jew's Jew so zealous that nobody in terms of their earthly knowledge about my life could say that I was anything but right standing with God. I woke up with the fact that I was a sinner. The only way I would be saved would be by trusting Jesus as my Savior. I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. Now, suppose I go back and start telling people that they're going to be saved by, by doing good works. He says, I am a transgressor. I'm sinning against the truth of the Lord in the first place. But secondly, he said, I'm just going to find out that I'll make myself a bunch, of, a bunch of laws which I will not keep. I'll be a transgressor. All right? So that's the loyalty. You, got, you see, this, this, there's something down deep in our heart that just wants to think that we are saved by our good works. You know what I've discovered? The people who, who wrestle the most with the doctrine of the security of the believer are people who have two characteristics in their life. They would never admit either one of them to you. People who say you're saved by doing your good works, it's got to be a part of your good works. I've discovered they have two characteristics. They would deny that these characteristics ever walk through the door of their house, but they are blatantly obvious to all their friends. Number one, they have a terrible inferiority complex. They look at themselves, they think they are terrible. They go around all the time and say, I'm just nothing. I'm, I'm awful. You don't want to do this. You don't want to talk. I'm, no, nobody in the world wants to give me the time of day. You want, I'm not worth anything. Nobody thinks I'm anybody. They have a terrible insecurity, inferiority complex. Number one, they think they're nothing. But secondly, that exhibits itself in their life by exaggerated pride. If you talk to their friends, what do their friends say? That guy, that gal's got an, a, an ego problem. That person's got an arrogance problem because they always think they're better than anybody else. Well, I don't do this. He says he's a Christian, and I haven't done that, and I haven't done this, and they have terrible arrogance and conceit in their life. Inwardly, they feel inferior to everybody. Outwardly, they act superior to everybody, and they judge. Oh, they're judgmental. But there, see, there's just this loyalty in our heart. We need to examine it and admit it. There's this loyalty we have in our lives that wants to think that we have at least a little smidgen to do with our salvation. God says, no. If you're going to come to me, it's going to be by my grace. No other way. All right, one final thing I want you to look at, if you will, please, very quickly. And that is, I think it's important for us to explain the law. So while we have a lie that must be exposed and a loyalty that must be examined, let's look at the law which must be explained. The law which must be explained. Now, notice verse 19. For I, the Apostle Paul says, I, through the law, am dead to the law. Boy, 
You know, you, you wonder sometimes why he didn't just come out and say what he means. Well, part of this is because this is a, 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 a almost word-for-word -word translation of the Greek language. I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. And, and the way they would say things then is not quite the way you and I would say them today. And so I want to walk through that just for a moment. And let's look at what the Apostle Paul means. The law must be explained. Now, as far as Paul is concerned, the law has three purposes, all right? There's a threefold purpose to the law. You say, wait a minute, preacher. If you're not going to be saved by keeping the law, then what good is the law? Is that just a failed system? Did God just blow it? Did he just give us a bunch of law? And then he said, well, good night. Those people are not going to be saved by keeping the law. Those scroungy folks, I'm going to have to come up with some other plan. No, this is all a part and parcel of God's plan, God's one plan. So what is the threefold purpose of the law of God? All right, number one, we've already talked about this. The law is a mirror of God's perfect heart. It is a mirror of God's perfect heart. When you read the law of God, you are seeing the heart of God. This is the way life ought to be. This is the way you ought to live. And there's nobody who will say, isn't it amazing? Even the people who deny the importance of the laws of God and do not want to have God in any way infringe on our society. And by the way, I was one of those people at the ball game yesterday who when they said, oh, you, let's pray, I was one of the ones who applauded. I said, yes, let's don't bow to these people who say, get God out of everything. Now, when even those people even those people would have to admit that there, the very legal system they are enforcing is built upon what? It is built upon nothing less than the laws of God. Nothing less than the laws of God. And so the law of God is a mirror, first of all, of God's perfect heart. All right, secondly, and so you need to see the heart of God, look at the law. That's how things can be. That's how things could be. That's how things ought to be. And that's how you, by His grace, can be. All right? Now, secondly, the law of God is not only a mirror, it is a measure. It becomes the way you measure what's in your heart. You, you walk up to a leopard in the wilds of Africa, and you say to that leopard, Are you a rebel? And that leopard says, rebel? What have I got to rebel against? No, I'm not a rebel. I'm a very peace-loving leopard. I do leopard things, eat other animals, <laughs> growl, run around real fast. That's just leopard stuff. That's the way God created me. I, this not, I don't even rebellion in my heart. I mean, just sort of live and, well, not live and let live, but I, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just a leopard. I, I no problem with me. I'm going to tell you something. You put bars around that leopard, and he wakes up, and he will go crazy trying to get outside. He's perfectly happy to lie there in the middle of the African veld and sleep until you put bars around. You go to a cow. Hey, are you, you have a rebel spirit? Me? I'm a contented cow. Not me. You put that cow in a pasture with a fence, and that cow will spend most of its time over at the fence row with her head stuck underneath it. Something about it. Now, 
You take an average individual, you say to him, are you a rebel against God? Me? No, man, I, I love God. I like the things of God. I don't have a rebel spirit. In fact, I am basically good until you put the bars of God's law around you and you discover that inside you there is a screaming leopard of rebellious sin. Cries out against everything God is. Cries out against everything God wants for your life. And so the law not only is a mirror of God's perfect heart, it is the measure by which you determine where you are in, in relation to where God is. The Apostle Paul says earlier, he says there, I would not have known sin if it hadn't been for the law. The law was a tutor to me, he said, a teacher, teaching me that there was sin in my heart. And so the law is a measure Builder goes out and wants to make sure that a house is built appropriately. He'll use a plumb line or he'll use a carpenter's level. He may use a transit, you know. He's going to find out that it's, it's like it's supposed to be. These are ways to measure whether things are straight up, down, vertical, horizontal, and on the level with the earth, you see. And the law becomes the measure by which we see how crooked we really are. This old idea that man is basically good is wrong. Man is basically bad. It is only the enforcement of his culture that is kept him the way it is. He is basically bad. And finally, the Apostle Paul says, the law is the means by which a hopeless person like me finally gives up on the idea that I will ever be saved by being good. And notice what he says. He says, for I, through the law, am dead to the law. You know what he's saying? He says, through trying to keep the law, through working as hard as I can, I finally discovered that I was hopeless. I took this, the law killed me. I mean, the more I tried to keep the law, the more frustrated I got because I couldn't keep the law. And finally, I just said, law, listen, you can't keep whipping up on me. I cannot satisfy you. I don't even know why you're out there. I don't even know what you're doing there. I can't even keep you. Through the law, through trying to keep the law, I have finally given up on the fact that by law I could ever get to God because I'll never be perfect enough. I, through the law, am dead to the law. But in the midst of that, the law pointed me away from my goodness to God's grace that I might live to God. In just a few moments, we're going to stand together. Our choir is going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. We're going to sing an invitation everyone here knows this morning, just as I am, just like you are. Without one plea, you can't come and say, I've done this good work and this good work.